brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. From wherever you are, around the world, around the world, welcome to the Circle of Insight, a show that explores the many facets of human behavior and the wonders of the human mind. And now, here's your host, Dr. Carlos. Welcome back, everybody. Today, we have a great guest, Dr. Joel Paris. We're going to be talking about his book called The Myths of Trauma, Myths of Trauma. Dr. Paris was born in New York, but has spent most of his life in Canada. He obtained an MD from McGill University. We also trained in psychiatry. Dr. Paris has been a member of the McGill Psychiatry Department since 1972. Since 1994, he's been a full professor and serves as department chair from 97 to 2007 and currently is an emeritus professor right now. Dr. Paris is also currently a research associate at the Jewish General Hospital and has personality clinics at both the MUHC and GAH. He's a former editor-in-chief of the Canadian Journal of Psychiatry. His research interest is also in borderline personality disorder. We might talk I'll tackle that a little bit later on in the show. But first today, we're going to be talking mostly about myths of trauma, what that's all about. Before we get started, you know what to do. Make sure to share, subscribe, hit that like button. You know, we like it. Let's not waste any more time. We're going to the show. Dr. Paris, welcome, sir. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you very much for being here. As I mentioned before, I've read this book and two other books you've written. You've written a lot. <laughs> Pretty prolific writer. I am. And um, I've enjoyed all of them. It gets my mind thinking in a very different way than I've had before. And that's always a good thing. So I guess my first question to you is, what made you write this book? Well, I am not an expert on PTSD or, or I've done much research in that area. But I, my, my, my own subspecialty is borderline personality disorder. People have proposed that is a condition which is almost entirely due to trauma, particularly in childhood. And I don't, don't agree with that. Because, and I'll, 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 I can explain why later. And uh, it's now being, being, some people want to rename the condition complex PTSD, which I think is a mistake because um, the, the um, majority of patients with borderline personality disorder don't have um, PTSD. The majority of patients with borderline personality disorder don't have a history of childhood trauma. They have something else, which I can speak about later, called emotional neglect, which is a risk factor. And there also are genetic and biological factors in borderline personality disorder, which, which are not really about trauma, but about your response to trauma. So I'm trying to put all this in perspective but the most of the book is about PTSD. Let me ask you real quick before we jump into the PTSD world about um, emotional neglect. I'm assuming it's going to matter the frequency that that's happening at the, the duration of it. 
Uh, is there something that you saw in the research that showed a specific type of neglect, a certain length of time or anything like that? Yes, well, these parameters have are notable in the effects of trauma and abuse during childhood. And, and, and that's a whole other subject. But emotional neglect has not been seen that way. Uh, my ideas are, are really taken from Marsha Linehan primarily, who is one of the leading developers of therapy for borderline personality disorder. And she had something called the biosocial theory with a biological element in which uh, people are more sensitive to their environment, get upset more easily. In psychology, we call this high neuroticism. You get out of whack easily and you don't, you don't calm down fast. And this is, this is something which is present in BPD, but also in many other mental disorders. Um, and so there's a biological factor which leads you to be pr prone to emotional dysregulation. And then if you, and you need more from your family because you need to have somebody help you to be, to understand your feelings, to, to uh, support you when you're upset with things. And certain families don't do that. They simply uh, um, dismiss or invalidate emotions and that's what I'm referring to as emotional neglect. It's similar to what you'll see in the literature about childhood adversity in general. Interesting. Yeah, I can see the overlap now because I know in the book you were really, you talked a lot about high neuroticism levels and the vulnerability to trauma. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I, I like to put it this way. Uh, if you want to understand trauma, you also have to understand genes. <laughs> because uh, there is an interesting theory by Jay Belsky, a well-known psychologist, who um, describes something called differential susceptibility to the environment. Some people are affected by everything that happens to them. There's a plus side to that because they may also respond more to a positive environment than the average person. But when there's a negative environment, they, they, they respond quite strongly and they end up hating themselves and getting into all kinds of difficulty in life. Um, and uh, so this is another version of the concept of neuroticism, but a little more sophisticated. And uh, so people who are sensitive to these things, if something goes wrong in their life, they get easily triggered. And but not everyone who who faces a stress or an adversity in life is going to be triggered, and that's really what the book is about. Yeah, that was really interesting. Some of the statistics you presented were amazing. <laughs> on that, they really surprised me. Well, ten percent, ten percent of people who are exposed to a trauma, as defined in the DSM manual, uh, a stressor of some kind, ten percent of the on the average, will develop PTSD at 90% won't. There are certain types of trauma which are more Trump, uh, leading to, to problems such as physical violence um, and rape. There are a couple of things where it can go up as high as 20%, but that still leaves 80% who don't develop PTSD. And most people who are in wars don't develop PTSD either. They're, 
veterans get a lot of treatment from the VA in the, in the States because, because they're seen as having been exposed to, to traumas, but most people come back from wars without PTSD. I don't know if you call it coincidence, synchronicity, if you're a young Ian, but it was funny because after I read that part in your book about the veterans, I had a intern who came to me and told me that she works, I think it's at the VA, and she was saying that she worked with a lot of combat veterans. I didn't tell her about your book. I did afterwards. I didn't mention anything else, but she offered this information freely. She said that the overwhelming majority of her combat veterans did not have PTSD. And the ones who did, most of them had it from childhood and not from combat, which I thought was amazing. That fits in with all the other research. Uh, people who develop PTSD have had symptoms before that, either a PTSD or some related anxiety or depression in the past. And that's related to their high, high neuroticism. And also, if you look at the patients who come to the VA, the ticket of entry is trauma <laughs> for some of them. And and uh, so this this may get focused on more than it's justified. But on top of that, people who are in clinical situations are different from the people out in the community who've had similar life experiences. And the ones who are seeking help are more sensitive to those experiences. So when you do community studies of PTSD, the numbers the numbers go down. You know. To, under five under five percent for sure maybe much even less than that wow that's really low <laughs> that's really low um it's interesting because i know i was talking to somebody about uh ptsd and i don't know if it was you or not i lost my train of thought so i'll have to get back to that question it's long gone now so i'll, I'll bring it back um in regards to ptsd you mentioned in the book about complex trauma and if I'm getting too far ahead of myself, let me know. But you mentioned complex trauma in the book, and you said it was really basically borderline personality disorder in a way, because it had a lot of similarities, emotional regulation issues, interpersonal difficulties. Um, impulsivity. Impulsivity. What are your thoughts about that? Well, there, there, is, a, there is a grain of truth in the concept of complex trauma and that people who've had multiple traumas for long periods of time are more at risk than those who have uh, have a single incident. So that there's a, that's where the complexity lies. But the definition, which is not in the DSM, by the way, they didn't accept it. They call it severe PTSD. Um, but it, it is in the ICD-11, which came out a few years ago from the World Health Organization. And this diagnosis is very popular in North America, even though nobody uses the ICD-11 for anything else. And, and the patients come in and they've read about it on the internet and people are self-diagnosing and they come in and say, I have complex PTSD. And this then also relates to people who have a rather broad view of what trauma is. So any bad thing that happened to you when you were growing up is, is considered traumatic, but that's not the way trauma is usually defined. It's usually defined as a threat to life and limb, you know, something that anybody would, would, be, would be a little bit stressed by. Um, and not, it's not, not things like emotional neglect. So um, this is, this, so the, the, the features in the definition, the ICD-11, of, of, of the outcome, 
of uh, complex PTSD describe things which are all features of borderline personality disorder. And then there are three basic areas which you see with one of them being the emotional dysregulation with mood swings and rages and emptiness and all kinds of things. Uh, then there's the impulsive behaviors, cutting yourself, self-harm, suicidal attempts, uh, possibly comorbid eating disorders and or um, substance abuse disorders. And then, the, and then a particularly typical set of patterns of interpersonal relationships in which, in which they get attached to people very quickly and they get disappointed very quickly and their relations are very unstable, often conflictual, sometimes even violent. And uh, so these are the main features. There are other things too, you know, that, that you may not see in every case, but those are the three basic, basic areas. And those are mentioned as outcomes of complex PTSD. And I think that's wrong because there's a lot of research having to do where they follow uh, children who have had uh, adversity during the serious adversity growing up and followed them into adulthood. And what it shows is that only a minority of these children develop any mental disorder. Most of them are resilient, and thank God for that. And uh, so this is the... the this is a cause and effect which is based on a kind of minority of the population who have unusually sensitive to the environment based on certain heritable factors. And you can show that in twin studies, about 40% of the variance is accounted for by uh, uh, gen genetic differences. And um, so the, this, is, this is a special group of people who have two hits, as they say in medicine, one from the genes and one from the environment. And then there's the gene-environment interaction. And the more upset you get, the worse you feel. And the worse you feel, the more likely you are to do things which are unhelpful for yourself. So this is this is what we see in borderline personality disorder. And I I, I think to try to to attribute all of these features to to trauma is is a big mistake because it it leads, to, I think, to mistakes in therapy because uh, these are people who need help with their current lives. They need to, to learn how to control their emotions. That's We see that in the dialectical behavior therapy. That's the main focus, which is emotional control, emotional regulation. They need to learn how to stop being impulsive, which also relates to controlling your emotions and finding ways to calm down. And they also have to learn how to have wiser relationships with other, other people, particularly intimate partners. So, uh, but if you only want to talk about what happened to them when they were children, I mean, it's not that you shouldn't talk about it. I mean, you should hear about, hear it out, validate it, say you had a really rough time, but let's see what you can do with your life now. So I think that this point of view of complex PTC could have a negative effect on psychotherapy, in my view. Because we, we, what we offer here in, in Canada is a kind of a eclectic mix of different techniques. But I think the strongest influence is Marshall Linehan's DBT, which is not about the past. In fact, Linehan said, if you've had a terrible past, learn something called radical acceptance, put it behind you, move on, get a life. Yeah, sure. 
sometimes the way she speaks reminds me of William Glasser from reality therapy a little bit. It is similar. Yeah. <laughs> kind of <laughs> reminds me. And a curiosity, I mean, I think you almost answered one of my questions already. So you're kind of uh, prescient on that. By the way, folks, again, uh, we're talking to Dr. Joel Paris. His book is Myths of Trauma, Why Adversity Does Not Necessarily Make Us Sick. Um, in Canada, do you use the ICD-11 or do you guys use the DSM over there? We use the DSM. You use the no, DSM? Nobody uses, uses the other one. We we are not, we are, most people live close to the border and and there are a lot of, and the American manual is, is, is considered standard right across the country. Now, when I was reading your book compared to the other books you've read uh, written as well, and you know what, I'll go ahead and mention some of those other ones for people. So well, I might have to go hunt those down. We'll mention those in a little bit. because <laughs> I have to hunt them down to find them. But in this book, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, of course, it seems like you were talking, you were referring more to misdiagnosis than you were actually talking about overdiagnosis, or are you talking about both? Well, there's, there is both. I wrote a book about overdiagnosis some years ago, which got went into a second edition in 2020. And there are a number of things that psychiatry, because we don't know enough, is very susceptible to faddish ideas. Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of them. I've been around 50 years, and we've had one fat after another. And, and diagnosis didn't used to be such a big deal, but now, but now people talk about you know, it, it is almost defining their identity. So certain conditions like ADHD, PTSD itself, bipolar disorder of the milder kinds, and now even autism spectrum disorder, people are picking up on these and they're reading about them on the, on the web and they're coming in saying, do I have this, do I have that? Uh, and this, this is then defining them. So there's a lot of overdiagnosis out there Borderline personality disorder has never been overdosed, overdiagnosed until recently when people began to realize we have effective treatments for it. The reason that nobody wanted to diagnose it in the past was the patients were considered incurable and chronic and would never get better. And you didn't want to see one, you know, because you couldn't offer them anything. But, but since we now, we have se several forms of psychotherapy that are well established to be effective. And we know how to treat most of these patients. And so some people are now sending me requests for consultation on patients who don't really have borderline personality disorder, but just have some of the features of it. So, so but it's all these other things that get, that get overdiagnosed or just seeing patients as having anxiety and depression for years without considering their personality functioning at all is, 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 leads to underdiagnosis. Misdiagnosis for a long time because of the mood swings there was a tendency, mostly among psychiatrists and not psychologists, to call the bipolar, a form of bipolar. This fad has kind of died out a bit because, because uh, a lot of people got lithium for no good reason and didn't get the psychotherapy that they needed. That's interesting. Uh, that's, that's great stuff because I know, well, I got your book, so let me go talk about that first and then we'll go back to it. Overdiagnosis and psychiatry is a great read, how modern... Psychiatry, oops, I can't read the whole thing here. Now, modern psychiatry lost its way while creating a diagnosis for almost all of life's misfortunes. 
Uh, this is a very common theme through a lot of your books. The Intelligent Clinician's Guide to the DSM-5, Fads and Fallacies in Psychiatry, uh, Nature and Nurture and Personality and Psychopathology, which will lead me to my next question in a little bit. Another one that I have not read yet, but interested in reading is The Bipolar Spectrum. Um, just a host of books. We don't have time in this show to cover all the books you've written. <laughs> We've written a lot of books. So you can spend some time perusing through the uh, Amazon.com folks and check out all the books. Um, back to nature versus nurture. Are you seeing any differences in the research in the amygdala and the sympathetic nervous system response for these individuals that are more susceptible to PTSD? Yes. I mean, the amygdala is the alarm system for the brain. And it's it's not the whole story by a long shot because you know you, you can't localize psychological variables into brain regions. It's too simplistic. The brain works interconnected, trillions of synapses. It works as a whole thing. But the amygdala is is an important element um, in terms of fear, anxiety, alarm, and and probably has a relationship to neuroticism. But the, the, these uh, probably, if there is something out there in, in terms of neuroscience research, it, it may be about the failure of the prefrontal cortex, which is your executive functioning, to control your limbic, the, the lower centers, the limbic, the limbic system, for example. Uh, and we all have a system which responds intensely to certain stressors, but then the prefrontal cortex is there to sort of process it and put it into a context and, and it helps you to helps you to calm down. It's it's related to some of the things we teach when we do dialectical therapy. Um, so I think there is something, but it's kind of vague. We're nowhere near understanding the neurobiology of any of the major mental illnesses. It's going to take another century <laughs> to find out given how complex the system is. We haven't, there is progress in terms of basic research in neuroscience, but if you're looking for the neuroscience for an answer, it's not there. And by the way, all these patients are put on antidepressants by, by their doctors before I even see them. And they, and they almost never work. Um, it's because they, 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 the depression they have is really a mood instability and it's not the same thing. And the antidepressants don't do much except, like many drugs, they have a slight sedative effect, effect which can help you lower your anxiety a bit. But in fact, these patients are not treated with medication. And in our clinics, we take them off the medication. They've been given often four or five medications because if one doesn't work, you keep adding another one and another one and another one, looking, 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 looking for, for an answer. So I think neurobiology of BPD and, or PTSD or any of the, of the mental illnesses we see is really terra incognita. It's gonna take a long time to sort it out. I mean, you hit a lot of uh, <laughs> triggers for me over here, Dr. Parents. Yeah, you know, the media is kind of funny that way because I think the media has a lot of, um, it oversimplifies things and the reductionistic presentation of how diagnoses work, how mental health issues work and, and people think we do have biomarkers for mental health issues, and there aren't any <laughs> biomarkers. You can't just take glucose levels and find out you got depression. That's the and that's the thing. And when brain scanning came in, we thought, oh, here's something. 
which is going to give us the answer. It turns out that brain scans are, are quite similar among different diseases which present with different symptoms clinically. And the problem is everything we study turns out to be less specific than we want. So there's no such thing as a biomarker in, in psychiatry. And we have to do without it until somebody discovers one. And so it's, it's different from the rest of medicine in that respect. And it's closer to clinical psychology for that reason as well. I think it's, that was really important for the audience to know. Because I think a lot of people, even therapists that I've talked to, still believe in the neuroscience by the way it was framed and packaged in books and stuff. They kept saying it was going to be on the, we were on the cusp of a breakthrough. And that was, and 20 years went by, we were still on the same cusp. <laughs> Somebody's got to push us over a little bit. <laughs> by the way, I, I did remember I was going to say earlier, um, I spoke to a recruiter for the Navy. And it was interesting because when she heard my conversation about the book, she said, you know what, that's really interesting because we look for high anxiety levels. And some of us will use the five-factor model, and they're looking for neuroticism because they found it's more vulnerable to PTSD. So they knew it. Well, uh, I guess I guess in the military you've got to be practical. <laughs> you do. I mean, it's interesting because it's not something you really hear much about. <laughs> the five-factor five model, I think, is something which, which is 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 uh, not not always used to describe personality, but the one the ask, but the one factor that has been studied the most is neuroticism, because that explains so much of what we see in patients. Yeah, a lot of it has to do with the prefrontal cortex, and correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of the emotional regulation issues, right? Impulsivity, things of that nature? Absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting. I did have a conversation with the dean of, um, not the dean, he's the chair of the perinatal department over in Italy. And the reason I bumped into him is because he was doing research on placentas. And he was talking about how male placentas were more vulnerable than female placentas. And his theory was theorizing that maybe with teratogenic effects in utero, this could make them even more vulnerable <laughs> to some of these things. Uh, the issue of in utero is very interesting. Uh, I'm not mm. sure about that precise theory. It sounds, I'm not sure, I haven't heard that one before. But um, <laughs> the in utero effects, there's a there's a, a couple of books by a psychologist from Scotland called Kevin Mitchell, okay. and I, which I would recommend. And he he suggests that it's that when you're building a brain as an embryo, it is such a complex thing that neurons have to migrate. You may have heard about this idea. They migrate, you know, to form synapses, and some of them are destroyed and some of them are kept. And there's this tremendously complex thing that goes on in the nine months we spend in utero. And there's a lot of randomness in that, potentially, in that situation, which is why he's written a book, Defending Free Will, which I, I think if you don't believe in free will, you can't be in the mental health professions <laughs> because, because you have to believe that people can change. They won't uh, be very effective if you don't. <laughs> right. <laughs> And so something, so, so there may be biological factors in terms of neural development prior to birth, which we don't really understand at all, to be honest. In conversation when it comes to in utero. Oops. 
Sorry about that, folks. Yeah, the in utero is one of the areas that really fascinate me um, and the relationship. But obviously, it's hard. As you mentioned, it's really difficult to try to f- figure out <laughs> what's happening there and that what can lead to future psychiatric issues. There's a lot of confounding variables. And I think yeah. one of your themes in the book of myths of trauma is you constantly went over the concept of multifactorial understanding. Enormously, Max, people have trouble being multifactorial. They want to believe there's one thing. And there are two reasons why trauma is very attractive. One is that it's, it's if you consider it one thing, you have the answer to so much else. And the other reason is that you have someone to blame for your troubles. Um, you know, somebody did bad things to me, and that's why I'm sick, as opposed to I had some bad things done to me. And because I'm an extremely sensitive person, I, lo- I lost my way, which is a different way of looking at it. And which So I, people have to think multifactorial. They have to think about gene environment interactions. And I'm a tremendous defender of the biopsychosocial model. And in the book, I describe how the biopsychosocial model explains PTSD, which has strong genetic, genetic risk, which, which, which of course is related to life experiences psychologically, but it's also, there's a social element in there in terms of the kind of support you get from outside in your community and, uh, and uh, your culture. And it's, it's, these things are very complex and people prefer simplicity to complexity. It's, they wanna think linear, we have trouble with all these multifactorial variables, but in mental health, you can't avoid that. And that's so true. It, you know, it's, I forget who said it. it, it somebody said it when I was growing up. It's the one thing. And, you know, the media and advertisers and marketing run with that. There's a panacea for everything. And it's kind of yeah. interesting. Absolutely right. Yeah. It, it happens in almost every discipline I've run into, whether it's business, nutrition, exercise. Everybody's got the one thing for you to figure it out. And I think that really, as you mentioned, causes a lot of problems in a hurry. I think so. Um, you kind of were heading towards, uh, actually, you almost answered another question. <laughs> Why the trauma diagnosis? Um, you gave us two answers there. Um, but you also mentioned treatment. And this might be a little bit more controversial out there, but when somebody develops a theory, sometimes there's money to be made on that theory. Oh, money. Yeah. <laughs> Does that play a role at all? Absolutely. Well, this is one of the later chapters in the book where I show that there are many treatments for PTSD, and they all do about the same thing, but they have different tr- names, you know, different labels, different ways of marketing themselves. But it was this tremendous thing about EMDR, which these were we, we, I moved the therapy. Um, and the person who devised that, I'm sure, made a lot of money out of it because you know it sells a lot of books and you're you're invited to get seminars, you know. But you know, if you look at if you look at the comparative studies, standard CBT is as good as anything else. And if you think about it, what is standard CBT? It's a way of training that prefrontal cortex to process your your experiences better. That's the essence of CBT, I, I think, in a nutshell. 
And that's also the essence of how to manage PTSD symptoms. So psychotherapy is the treatment of choice, but we don't need some, some, something special with a three or four letter acronym or, or which has been in the, in, in the media, you know, as you know, the latest, the latest thing. We have the tools to treat most, most of these patients and we, we, don't, we don't need to uh, go ape for, for an acronym. Well, I don't think we're ever going to get you out of here. But <laughs> led to two other questions, but I'll I'll make them brief. Do you think the EMDR and placebo is that one of the reasons it's, it has been successful in some capacity? Or no, I th I think the eye movements don't do anything at all because uh, that's what the research shows. Because if you don't do do the eye movements, you get you get the same results. Um, I think uh, I wouldn't call it a placebo because some of the because if you just take away that kind of uh, business of waving a wand at somebody and watch it while they move there, if you take away that, you're back to doing some kind of CBT. Mm -hmm. So that, I would call that a placebo. That's true. Good point. Yeah, CBT to me kind of reminds me of exercise with the prefrontal cortex, <laughs> making Absolutely. it stronger. That's a very good way of thinking of it. Okay. Uh, what do you think about uh, most of the last couple of questions are really just your thoughts we're straying away from the book a little bit. Again, folks, it's Dr. Joel Harris. The book is called Myths of Trauma. Highly recommended. There's fads and fallacies in psychiatry. Another one he just touched upon was overdiagnosis in psychiatry. Um, polyvagal theory, any thoughts on that from Dr. Porges? I don't know much about it, to be honest. Okay, we move forward. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did hear this was interesting. Somebody the other day, uh, this seems to be the new golden child of pharmaceuticals for some reason lately. But I heard somebody had bipolar, and then somebody came to me with borderline, and they both were prescribed gabapentin, which seems to be the new golden child. Well, gabapentin is being prescribed where Valium and, and other benzos mm -hmm. used to be prescribed. And it, it doesn't have the complications offered because it's not addictive. Although... It's new enough that maybe after we've been using it for a number of years, uh, but you know, it's specific for it's specific for anxiety, uh, and it and it, it doesn't have this kind of cross tolerance with alcohol that, that makes some people there's a minority of people who get hooked on them and then end up with, with a serious serious addiction with with Valium like like drugs. Um, and, and you don't have to worry about that with gabapentin. So maybe that's one reason it's popular, or maybe just because it's newer and people want to be up with the latest thing. It's not a panacea, okay. but it does reduce anxiety. Well, it does have a purpose for it in some, some capacity. I, I think so. Any thoughts on some of, I know you read a lot of books about overdiagnosing, a lot of some of the fads and fallacies out there. Anything you see on the horizon <laughs> might be developing or brewing? There's always something because where there is a multi serious gaps in knowledge, there will always be fans to fill the space. True. <laughs> That's true. Um, in regards to trauma, I guess your take then would be, do you think, well, let me ask you this, do you think the DSM will actually put in complex trauma eventually? Or do you think they'll eliminate borderline or... Well, 
the the DSM, uh, uh, you know, is 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 expert uh, consensus. It isn't pure science. It's the opinion of those of the people who are in these committees who are most concerned with it. Um, I don't think they're buying complex PTSD now, and we have to we'll have to wait quite a while because the DSM five TR came out in nineteen twenty in. 2022, so it'll be another seven or eight years. I don't think I'll be around um, in 2030, because I'm an old man. But uh, I, I think something else may happen in DSM-6, which is that the personality disorder, there are two personality disorder systems in the DSM-5. One is the old one, which has been there since DSM-3, with the 10 categories. And the other one is called the alternate model for personality disorder, which is what they call section three of the manual, which are is a section about diagnoses that require more research to back them up. And it was originally proposed before 2013 to replace the old system, but they but it was felt that they didn't have enough backing for it. Since then, there have been hundreds and hundreds of papers about the this alternate model. And what it does is it combines the advantages of a dimensional model of, per, of personality, which is similar to the five-factor model, with uh, categories, only five categories, but categories which, which can emerge at, from algorithms based on those dimensional scores. And I think it's, it needs a little, little more work. It's kind of complicated, maybe not for a busy clinician, but... Uh, <laughs> If they can simplify it and make it user-friendly, I might see that coming in in DCDFM 6. My last question, I lied. Um, your thoughts on family systems, st structural family therapy, brief strategic therapy. I don't know if that enlarges the question too much, but any thoughts on that and how that could work with trauma or anything like that? Well, it depends on the age of the patients because not every grown-up people want you to meet their family. Uh, they'd rather just accept the version that they of their family that they're, they're presenting to you. Um, these things may have a role in adolescence. Borderline personality disorder begins in adolescence and can, and can be reliably diagnosed during adolescence. And you want to meet families. And uh, also, if you have a highly suicidal patient, you should probably meet the family and tell them you can't guarantee you're going to prevent suicide, but you're going to do your best or something like that. Um, because some of these patients do commit suicide with with borderline personality, about five to ten percent, something like that. Um, the uh, so structural there hasn't been enough research on the structural family therapies in personality disorders. It's it's been mainly for, for more kind of everyday life problems, and I haven't seen much particularly related to, to my domain. I mean, either Dr. Joel Paris, everybody, the books, Myths of Trauma, Fads and Fallacies in Psychiatry is another one. Overdiagnosing in Psychiatry. My advice, just look up Joel Paris when you're on Amazon, and you'll see a whole slew of books. Dr. Paris, thank you so much for being here. And thank you again for, for the good questions and, and for being, being in, on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Make sure to share, subscribe, hit that like button. You know we like it. And go check out. Miss of trauma.